Welcome to our third sermon in preparing for the presence of God. So far, we've talked about preparing for the presence of God, that it is God's initiative, that God knew, and God involves Moses in in experiencing holy ground. We moved on to talking about God's authority given to us in Scripture. The history of Scripture gives us the foundation to know truth, which Jesus claims as he is truth. He is the foundation for truth, for the understanding of creation, for the understanding of all of the world. And so today we're moving into accepting no substitutions. You know, we believe that Jesus is always with us. And the Bible tells us that we can believe that, that we should believe that. You know, even to the end of the age, God promises to be with us. But how do we get to that vision and what does it actually look like? How are we prepared for it? And today's message is really going to challenge us because it's important for us to consider how we know and how we experience the presence of God. So our expectations are according to scripture, not according to cultural whims. Really, really important for us today. So we think sometimes that we're ready for the presence of God, and we might be. Uh, The presence of God is going to change everything about how we live our life, about how we view the world. The presence of God becomes vitally important, as it should be, because God's dream is to be with us, with us in his presence. So when when confronted with the presence of God in history, blue-collar workers have turned into international international spokespeople. I can't speak today. That's okay. When confronted with the presence of God, people who have, uh, they have no rank or status have been transformed to lightning rods for attention. When transformed by the presence of God, people who are usually quiet have become quite bold in their proclamation in what they say about God. Today, we're going to discuss having no substitutions for the real presence of God. This is where we really get into the meat of what it looks like as we press forward and prepare ourselves to be confronted with this great God that has invited us into his story. God, I thank you that you are active, that you are real, that you are living, and that you are working among us. As people of promised church, you are working among us, and it's more than what we ever thought or imagined, but that you are active and that you are doing things, and it is wonderful to be a part of it. So today we just thank you, and we just sit in that presence for a moment, where we just recognize that you are the one orchestrating this, our coming close to you, and you coming close to us. God, we thank you for those moments that we experience now, and we thank you for the life that you're calling us to, where we constantly have your presence with us. Help us understand it in a good way. In Jesus' name, amen. God is very, very interested about his exclusive work. He is very serious about it. He has shown us in scripture who he is, 
And now God, who has a will of his own, distinct from our own, you know, has, he has made a commandment that is solid. Early on in the history of God revealing himself, he made a set of commandments that became famous as the Ten Commandments. And it's recorded twice in scripture. We're going to look at, at Exodus 20. Read it today. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or on earth below or anything that is in the water or under the earth. You will not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am jealous, God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You will not take the name of your Lord, of the Lord your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, I'm going to stop there because what I want to do is I just want to go through a couple of these things really quick and then get into how God demands no substitutions and why that makes sense. So God purchased his people from slavery. The Hebrew people had gone down with a bunch of other Semitic clans, had gone down into Israel during a huge famine, which is recorded, um, and the story of Joshua, sorry, the story of... um, of uh, Joseph. I don't know why I get those two names confused. Maybe because they start with J-O. The story of Joseph is told to us where, where where he comes in and all of the Hebrew people gather together and they get given a really beautiful land, um, a farming land of Goshen. And Goshen becomes their haven. It's actually a very beautiful place. And, uh, As time progressed, they went into slavery and they were owned by the Egyptians. They were a lesser people. Anti-Semitism actually started around this time. The Semite people were the people of the Eastern um, Mediterranean, all the tribes there, and they were, they were troublesome to the, uh, to the Mesopotamian world above and to the Egyptian world below. These two kingdoms, really powerful kingdoms with this middle land, which was a trade route, uh, held up by all these little tribes. And so they were the people that very early on, that's where, that's where anti-Semitism actually started. Um, and so, terrible, terrible things have happened along that that it should be in no way condoned and that we should be working against that. Um, but it's historic. That's where it was. But they were given this land of Goshen and they were all these, all these Semites, they were given this land and they were placed there as peaceful residents, but then they were made slaves. God set them free. Liberation from slavery demands allegiance See, the power that sets you free from the greater power that's holding you captive now owns you. You have been purchased. We get ransom idea from this. You have been taken from slavery and now you have been brought into freedom, but you are still owned. You are not your own. You are God's. So the idea is God is God and not Pharaoh. And that's what's happened. As God loves on these people, he's like, I'm gonna invest in these people 
This is what God does. He, he redeems them and he brings them out and he says, now I will identify you as my people. You are God's people. That's huge. If we want to understand the presence of God, we have to understand ownership. You know, First commandment is you will have no other gods before me because the ple- to pledge allegiance to, to either your captors before and to get like favors from Egypt or to, or to go up to Mesopotamia, Assyria, or you know, any, of the, any of the Mesopotamian countries to pledge allegiance to them, you're also kind of saying, well, God, you were really powerful at one point, but you're not working for me now. You're not, you're not actually helping our country anymore, or we don't trust you anymore. And so it becomes a flying in the face of the gift of freedom. And so God's like, no, you can't have any other gods before me. When, when we see that, we see that, that God is claiming ownership over these people. And God is claiming ownership over all of his people, over all history. So when you say you are a Christian, This is not to be confused with an identity that you take on for yourself. Mm -mm. It's not like, oh, I choose to be a Christian and I'm identifying as a Christian. No, we're removing the, the word Christian from identity politics and we're actually putting it into ownership. If you say you are a Christian, you are saying, I have given the ownership of my life to Jesus Christ. I accept no other substitutions. Jesus is the one that I put my ownership in. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who reveals himself in Scripture, as we talked about last week, he is the one that owns my life. Christianity is not a belief system that gives you an identity. It is an ownership where you pledge ownership to God and you say, God, I give you my life. That's what we mean when we say, I gave my life to Jesus. It's ownership language. And so God does not want us to settle for anything less than the freedom found in giving ownership of our life to Jesus. He doesn't want us to settle for anything less. And we're going to get into what makes it less. Start with the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East was full of these tribes that I explained. And each tribe came up with religious structures in which they understood the divine. They, they had these tests, they had these ideas, they had these rituals, they had this land. Oftentimes, the tribes would actually scoop up land and take it in their armies as they would go and attack another tribe. Because in the land, God is with them. And so we have, we have these tribal ideas of how these people are figuring out God. Well, how are they getting it? How are they understanding? Well, they're making observations. They're saying, hmm, there's stuff going on in the world that is beyond the physical. There's stuff that's making this physical stuff happen. Rain is coming and then it's not coming and the seasons are changing and the sun is coming up and going down and we're not doing anything about it. There must be a God who is in charge of all of it. And they're starting to speculate. Sociologists have it right that religion was created from the speculation of observation and people are saying, wow, God did this and God did that. And so people all over the ancient Near East are actually doing that. And they're coming up with their perception of God. In their lifetime, they're gaining knowledge and they're gaining the information and and they're running it through their five senses and saying, this is what we think of God. Now, 
That's what they do. This exists today in our world. This is prominent today in our world. This is prominent today in the church, isn't it? Where we come up with our five senses and our experiences and all of our thoughts, and we put together our theories of, oh, I believe that God's like this, and somebody else, oh, I believe that God's like this, and we come up with what I referred to last week as our truths. And God doesn't want us to settle for anything less than himself. And what we do is when we create all of these ideas, like they did in the ancient Near East, like we do now, we just take our single-minded perception of truth and we make it work in our worldview, in our schema. But by definition, it is small. It's smaller than God. It's even smaller than us. See, it holds no transcendent power. When I say, I believe in God, but that God is made up of my understanding and my perception of truth and my projection of feeling, when I say I believe in God, I'm reducing God to a construct that is not God, but it is powerless. It can't transcend It can't communicate. It can't do anything. And so God says, have no other God before me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You have an experience that is verifiable. It was miraculous. It was groundbreaking. It was totally new. I came to you. I showed you myself. I am God. Don't settle for anything less. And to the Christian today, we have the whole of Scripture where God is saying, I have informed people over thousands of years to see me and to understand me. Don't think for one second that you can reconstruct that through your own wisdom and your own understanding. Because by definition, it will be smaller than you. And a God that is smaller than you is not worth serving. The great news here today, church, is that the God we serve has grounded himself in history, has grounded himself in action and in revelation, and and he demands and dictates that there are no others. God will accept no substitutes. The, The Yahweh the, uh, the I am, when Moses came and approached God and, and, or God approached Moses and said, I want you to, to free the, the nation of, of Israel from the Egyptian captivity. Moses said, on whose authority am I doing this? Who do I say sent me? And, and God gives what gets translated to us, says, the I am sent you. And what we have there is Yahweh, the name of God. It literally translates into English as, I am who I said I am and who I always will be. There is a transcendence of God that's built into his identity. When we just try to figure out God without reading scripture, without participating in the communion of the church, all we can come up with is subjection. We come up with ideas of God and we construct them the same way that all other religions have been created in the past. The the empty type of, oh, well, God works for me here and this is what I think about God. And we project. 
So why is God so picky? Well, it's not arrogance that makes God picky. It's actually because if God really exists, then he is larger than us. He is genuinely beyond your ability to piecemeal together your opinions to make it stand. God is picky not because he's arrogant, but God is picky because he wants you to know him and not a shadow. We are invited into the very presence and knowledge of God on his initiation. Christians for too often have gotten it wrong that we think that we conjure the presence of God by our posture when we pray or our way that we lift our hands when we worship or, or in all of these other means that, that we do church and we, we give and we go to church and we do these things and we want to meet with God and we think that we are creating the presence of God and we're thinking about it backwards. No, God is inviting us to join a thousands of year old story of humanity being brought closer to God at his initiation. All we do is respond. So he's, he's picky because he is God. Now, if God doesn't actually exist, then all of this is conjure. All of it is whatever. But we talked about how we're, we're sure that God exists because of the authority of scripture the investment that went into Scripture, the observations. So when I demand to approach God on my own terms, I prove that I don't actually believe in God. When I say, oh, well, my God is like this, and don't base it on truth and on the community of the believers, when I don't base it on Scripture, and I just say, I believe that God's like this, and that's okay for me. We actually say we don't believe in God because we would think that if we truly believed in God as great and as big as he is, we would actually respect that God has taken initiative. You know, um, sometimes we just take our own values. I was back in youth group when somebody confronted me with this idea. They were like, Jesus, Jesus is a funny guy. You know, Jesus, when, when, we get, when I get to heaven, Jesus and I, we're just going to sit down by a campfire and we're just going to tell jokes all day long. And that was the novel idea that we could just put all of this on Jesus. Jesus is funny. Well, the Bible gives us some areas where, where Jesus is sarcastic or it appears like he's sarcastic. But, you know, and he's human and he's person, so he probably could tell a joke. But to reduce the idea of Jesus is a funny guy is to create subjecture where I just, I just take my own desires and I, my ideal of self and I project them onto Jesus. And I say, well, Jesus is, is the ideal of what I couldn't be. Jesus is, Jesus is ultimately funny. And so I'm going to be entirely entertained in heaven when I get to meet Jesus. Well, no, now we're, now we're reducing it. It's kind of like somebody saying, well, Rob, his name isn't actually Rob, he's Peter. And then they would always address me as Peter. And they would put character attributes that they want me to be. And they would be like, well, Peter is really, you know, he's really great with talking to new people. And he's really charismatic. Well, that Peter, I like that Peter. And they're all applying it to me. 
Like I am now Peter and I am charismatic and I'm really good at talking to people I've never met before. Well, it's not fair. It's not accurate. It's not true. And so we really have to be careful when we talk about God, we have to respect the person of God and the revelation of God. That makes us say that we don't project. See, our world has, has made us almost believe that God is a figment of our imagination that we use to make us feel better. Our world has almost made us believe that, you know, Christianity is based on imagination, or God is a self-help tool, or God is a tool to help you gain something that you want, or, you know, God is a crutch that you lean on through hard times. And they've almost made us believe that God is a figment of our imagination, that just, that just is kind of there, that we kind of pray to when we're in trouble. It's kind of like a Hail Mary, throw it out there, maybe something will happen. But the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is way greater, way greater than that simplistic, wrong-headed idea of God. The God of the Bible is powerful and strong and great. The God of the Bible makes his presence known. And when I approach God on God's terms, my life is changed. Changed. That's what happens. My life has changed when I approach God on God's terms, when I respect him, when I take no other gods before him. You know, now I want us to think about something. If God were totally powerful and totally everywhere, and he wanted to, you know, let his creation, which were finite beings when he is an infinite being, they're finite beings. If he wanted to let his creation know him, how would he do it? See, it's that life-changing puzzle that works itself out. And now I want to transition to how God reveals himself and how he's doing it. See, the question that we have is about God is based on our limitations. And God has gone, I want you to know how to know me without overpowering without being so overpowering that it's like, oh, well, we can't actually know anything about God because he is just great. See, if you were this almighty God, that you knew that you would just overpower any human that you showed up to in full glory, how would you reveal yourself? Well, the first thing you would do is you would veil yourself. You would actually remove yourself and go, I'm going to place hints and projections and predictions, and I'm going to start to show myself as faithful, which is what God does. So God responds to the smallness of, a, of his creation by pulling back a little bit and going, you can't see all of who I am. When, when approaching Moses, you know, God implies that if you saw my face, you would most surely die. You can't handle that level of, of power. The overwhelming presence of God, whenever you see God's presence in the Old Testament, it is stunning. It is vibrant. It is life-changing. It is, it is unnormal. It is supernatural. It is unnatural. And so, so 
they have no choice but to worship or stand in awe or even fall prostrate, laying down on the ground in front of the person of God. And this is just the presence and the person of God. And so, so God, God has pulled back a little bit and made it so that we can't see and we can't know or see all of him all at once. God is progressing his revelation Step by step, he's actually showing how to unveil him so that we can see him. To unveil him so that we can experience him, to know him. And he prepares us for his presence. God has given us the narrative to this in scripture. For example, the unveiling of God. In the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, there is a big tent, uh, there's a big curtain, a big veil in between the people's access and the presence of God, hidden behind the veil. In the temple, this veil is put there, the curtain temple. It was like really thick and really, really tall. And so we've got this, this veil that happens. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil is torn and it's as though the presence of God is released to all of humanity, which in Acts 2 where we see the Holy Spirit revealed, we see, we see the presence of God and the, and the physical manifestation of the presence of God in tongues of fire, just like in the Exodus, tongues of fire. We see this fire presence of God on the disciples. So God is unveiling himself piece by piece. And so we start to see it. And so God is unveiling and he draws a story of anticipation so that we can recognize his presence. God wants to be recognized. He accepts no substitution and he wants you to recognize his presence. He is too large to be fully realized by one person but, and, or by one generation, but generation after generation after generation. That's why the church is so steeped in tradition. We are steeped in tradition because it's God's tradition showing us the way. Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada was, was formed in, well, of Canada was formed in um, 1912, I think is when we actually got our whole constitution together. Might be a couple years later than that. But in 1906, stuff started happening. God's presence started showing up. We started documenting. This is what's happening. It's changed the world. The Pentecostal movement has changed the world. It's changed church. It's reaching people all over the third world countries, all over China, all over Asia, all over the world. It's changed church. So we mark it down. And so, so this is so important that we're steeped in these traditions of, of the history of God's actions. We can't, we can't separate from that. Because if we separate it, we, we presume too much and God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and we start worshiping a substitution, an imitation. God doesn't do imitations. He doesn't, he doesn't allow for that. I want to show us a scripture. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, um, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And in, in Isaiah uh, 9, verse 6, we have, 
We have, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It shows us that God is going to introduce himself as a person, in the person of Jesus, who God will take upon the entire government. Remember that whole ownership piece. God will take upon the entire government and will say, I'm going to run this. I'm going to show you how the world is made right. You know, we jump from God being away to God being imminent. And he's made through the person of Jesus. So next week, I'm going to unveil the entire story of how Emmanuel comes to us because God is preparing us for his presence where we can understand. And guys, church, it is so important that we don't accept substitutions, that we don't just fall for the idea that because I worshiped and I got goosebumps down my, down my arm or whatever, that, that this is the extent of the presence of God. The presence of God is transformative. It changes you. It changes everything about you. And when you can start to see it in Scripture and you start to hear it in the traditions of your church, when you start to see it happen in your own life, then all of a sudden your faith is overwhelmed where you get to a place where you just go, God, you are so good. And the worship of God comes out of that, that you are transformed. I have been transformed by the presence of God. My worldview is not the same as it was before. My shadow constructs of God have been made more real. And God will do more. We cannot accept substitutions. If we're going to prepare for the presence of God, we need to know the story of God. So next week, we're going through the story of God in Fast Forward. God, I just pray for this congregation as we are preparing ourselves for your presence. We recognize it's your story. We recognize the authority through scripture. And we recognize that we don't want to settle for any substitutions, that we just want you. And so God, we pray that you would reveal yourself even in this time that you would start to show us as families who you are and what you want to do. God, I just pray that your presence would become known to us, that we would have moments, maybe it's in the shower, maybe it's when we're reading scripture, maybe it's when we're praying, maybe it's when we're driving in our car, but that we would have moments that you give us more truths and more glimpses into your greatness, that we would not fall for substitutions, but that that every action that you give in our life would be affirmed in Scripture, would be affirmed by the history of the church, would be affirmed by your consistent, faithful work in humanity. God, help us see you as bigger than we ever imagined. In Jesus' name, amen.